started with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll jump in here. Lord God, we thank you that you've brought us here tonight. Thank you for your word, that we may open it and read it. And by your spirit, you give us understanding, that you convict our hearts. God, thank you that we can be here together and love one another, worship you together. Lord, I pray that you would truly speak to us tonight. God, that these would not be my words, but they would be yours. Lord, I pray that all glory and praise would go to you. Lord, we seek to honor and glorify and worship you tonight. Lord, we ask by your grace you bless this time tonight that we have together. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you guys have ever done an escape room before? Okay, okay, more than half. All right, it's getting quite popular. Um, I, I did my first escape room a few years back. Actually, I guess it's more than that now, but it's, it was probably five years ago or so. Um, and I did it kind of as a work event, me and uh, a few of the other managers. This is when I was working at the, the door company, right? We, we, we would sell door hardware. We would sell locks and keys. And we're going to an escape room. So you think we'd be good at it. We're the managers of the locks. That's very important to the story. Anyways, we do this escape room. If you know, I've done it before. You do all these like weird things and things open and pop out. And you're trying to escape the room before time runs out or you die. You don't actually die. But they make you think it. I was in Richmond, so I did think I was going to die. In any case, here we are. Like it's, the, the time is ticking. You have one hour. And we're like at the very last puzzle. And there the, the key pops out. And, and the door to escape has a padlock on it. And there's the key. And I'm telling you, we have one minute left. And they give me the key. And I run over there. And they're thinking, yeah, of course Luke knows how to work the key in the padlock. And I'm there. And I don't know how to use it. And, and, and everyone assumed, well, of course, you're a manager of a lock company. You know how to use a padlock. But I didn't. I'm fumbling. I don't know what to do. And they're like, what are you doing? Just do the – I don't even know what they said. The twist and turn roundabout. I don't know what they were saying. And then they're like, I, I don't know how. And so then they had to do it for me. And needless to say, we escaped with like four seconds left. Okay, So we made it. We made it. But the point is they assumed I, – I assumed I knew how to use a padlock and key. I still think I know how to use it, but I really don't think I know how to use a padlock and key. And they assumed I knew how to use it. We all thought – that I could use it. I knew how. But evidently, I didn't. Right? I thought, yeah, it's just a, a lock and key. And I work with locks and keys all day. Of course I know how to use it. And they thought, of course he knows. But I didn't. And I think in a similar way, one may assume that if someone grew up in the church and th- that they know all about what it means to pray. Right? Because we do it. We hear it. We see it. We partake in it. So we think, of course, yeah, we all know what it means to pray. But that might not always be the case. We may talk about prayer. We may know about prayer. We may say a prayer. But are we actually engaged in genuine biblical prayer? Last week we started our two-week series on we're calling a life of prayer. And last week we looked at the who, the what, and the when of prayer. And this week as we conclude the series we're going to look at the where, the why, and the how of prayer. We continue to evaluate in ourselves the health and the genuineness of our prayer life. Do we have a prayer life? Is it healthy? Is it biblical? And like last week, it's, it's going to be very heavy on the imperative and maybe not as heavy on the indicative. Or it's going to be more focused on, on the doing than it is on, on the knowing. So please, please, Filter all of this, I want to say this up front, as I did last week. Filter all of this through the lens of the gospel. All right? if, if you are a Christian, if you have been saved by grace through faith, then you are now a new creation, and you have a relationship with God. And it is out of this newness and out of this relationship that you will naturally desire to commune with your Father. And we do this through prayer. Now, this does not positionally make you closer to God. It does not save you more. It does not make you, quote, a good Christian. But is naturally part of the new lifestyle of the follower of God. 
And if you are not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do not hear this and think that that you must do all these things in order for God to to love you. That, okay, i got to get all my prayer life, everything lined up right, and then God will finally love me. No, the, the prayer you need is the prayer of repentance done in faith. The prayer that you need is the prayer that goes before the Lord in your sin, asking that he would forgive you of your sin and believing in the name of Jesus Christ. So please, as, as, as we talk more about prayer tonight, please filter it through the lens of the gospel. All right, so let's jump in. We answered the who, the what, the when. Tonight, the where, the why, the how. Okay? So first, we look at the where. And really, we're going to look at two places. First, pray privately. Where do we pray? We pray privately. Do not underestimate the importance of private prayer. Go and retreat. Get away. Pray by yourself privately. One of the healthiest things you could do for your Christian walk is to engage in private prayer. To set time aside and escape from the world and go spend time with your Father. Whether that means waking up early before the sun gets up and just spending time in meditation in His Word and in prayer to the Father. Whether that means getting away. Sometimes I, I would just get away from the noise, literally. I, I would just go on a walk at night by myself. And just pray out loud to the Lord. Just so I can be in the, in the stillness and the quietness of all the noise I have all day long. Just get away and pray to the Lord. And it's interesting. Even though private prayer is so vital to the Christian spiritual health, I do believe it's one of the Christian duties that is ignored more than any other. Now, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it's because we, we don't see the value of it, of of. Private prayer, maybe it's because we don't, we don't receive credit for it, right? I mean, it's done in private. I don't know why. But what is your, if, if you are neglecting private prayer, what is your reason for neglecting private prayer? You should evaluate that in yourself. What is it? Why do you neglect private prayer? Now, Jesus is always our example, right? We know that Jesus is our example in all things. What, what did his life demonstrate in regards to his prayer life? Write down Matthew 14, 23. This is one of many examples. Matthew 14, 23 says, And after he, that's Jesus, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This is one of many examples in which we see time and time again when Jesus leaves everyone to go pray in private. It was essential for him. You can bet that it's essential for us too. So where should we pray? We should pray privately. Where else should we pray? Pray publicly. Right? You pray privately and we pray publicly. Now how is this done? We pray in the congregation. We pray publicly with his people. And we pray with other people. Yes, we're to pray privately, but also publicly with others. And we can do it here at youth group, right? We, we, we can, this can happen during announcements when, when we pray for the people we support. In our discussion groups later, we will pray for and with one another. In church, maybe, we will pray for and with others. When God's people are gathered together, we must pray publicly together. Don't fear public prayer. I know that's a big thing for people, that we fear it. It doesn't matter what others think. Prayer is not about impressing others around you. That's not what it is at all. Prayer is worship between you and God. So pray. I mean, I, I love to see more volunteers pray at TYG. And I love those that pray, those that pray here for those that we support. But I'd love to have more than just the regular three or four people. And you three or four people, I love you guys. Thank you. That's good. But I think we have more than three or four people here. I think we have more than three or four people that are capable of praying for these people that we support. It's not about using fancy language. It's not about sounding good. It's not what it's about. It's about worshiping God. Prayer is not for your gain. It is for the glo- to, to glorify God. Matthew 6, 5. Let me turn there for you. Matthew 6, 5. Says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Don't be like the Pharisees and pray loudly for your own gain. Don't pray to receive the praise from others. See, private prayer is hard to do with a false motive. Because why would you pray privately for status gain? No one's going to see it, right? It's in private. But public prayer could be done in wrong motive. Maybe we like to, we want to impress people. We want our friends, or we want the staff, or we want our parents, or we want others to say, "Wow, he prayed." Ooh, did you hear those words he said? That sounded pretty good. Man, he must, he must really love God. God must really love him. You hear that? And we start thinking. Well, what are they going to think? Are, are they going to think highly of me? Are they going to think low of me? What, what are people going to think when I pray? It's not what it's about. Pray in the congregation. Yes, pray with others publicly, but do so with the right motive. To worship God. Which brings us to the why. Which brings us to the why. We look at why do we pray. We're going to see several reasons why we pray. First, prayer is a command from God. Prayer is a command from God. Prayer is an act of obedience to God. First Thessalonians 5:17 says pray without ceasing. Romans 12:12 12, 12 says be constant in prayer. And sometimes we get caught up in the question, well, does does prayer really do anything? I don't know, like you know, does it even matter? And and, and so we don't pray. And praying, it takes time, and it takes energy, and it takes focus, and it takes work to pray. And when it comes time to pray, and we'd rather not, we're like, I don't know, we question whether it even does anything. And so so, so we just don't pray. Regardless if prayer does anything or not, it doesn't matter. God commands us to do it. So do it. And we're going to see later how prayer does accomplish much. It does. But even if it didn't, we are still to pray. Praying is a matter of obedience. It's not a matter of whether at the end of the day you get what you ask for or not. It's a matter of whether you're going to be obedient or not. You want to know a practical way in which you can live in obedience to God? Pray. Pray. That's one way that you can. It is a command from God. Therefore, it is a sin not to pray. When we live a lifestyle that is prayerless, we are living a sinful lifestyle. You understand that you living a life without prayer is sinful against God. To neglect prayer is, is, is more than just ignoring a gift given from God. It's sinful. And so maybe you need to, in prayer, go before the Lord and confess that you've ignored his command of prayer. You have neglected communion with him. And in doing so, find grace and forgiveness. And in doing so, act in true repentance and begin to pray. So why should we pray? Because prayer is a command from God. Secondly, why else should we pray? Because prayer humbles us. Prayer humbles us. Prayer is not just a command, but it is also for our benefit. Yes. One way in which it is to our benefit is that it humbles us. Because prayer brings us to our knees and reminds us of our dependence of him. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter 5. We're going to look at 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Prayer is an act of humility, an act of weakness. It is a desperate cry for help. It is admitting that you are not in control. It is admitting that you are not self-sufficient. It is admitting that you need God. First, in in these verses, we see that prayer humbles us under the mighty hand of God. The beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When we pray, it ought to put us in our place. 
And what is our place? Our place is on our knees, faces to the ground, under the holy, awesome, almighty God. Prayer ought to remind us that we are nothing and that we need God. That we are here, we are down low, and God is up here. It makes us realize that we have no power, that we have no strength, that it all belongs to God. And that is humbling. Secondly, in these verses, we see that prayer waits for God's perfect timing. He continues in verse 6, he says, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. When we pray, we are submitting to God's perfect plan and his perfect timing. And we so often want things here and now, and we want answers right now. And, and, and as we pray, when we pray to God and submit to his will, we are saying, God, at the proper time, you will answer this according to your will. We must be patient and trust that his timing is better than ours. When God answers your prayer as wait, it is because it is better for you to wait than for that answer to be a yes right now. And maybe one day that answer will be a no. And even so, that will be better than if it was yes. It is humbling to trust his timing. Thirdly here, we see that Prayer casts all anxieties on him. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. What a joy and a gift it is that we are able to cast all anxieties on him. If you are anxious, if you worry, if you fear, cast it on the Lord. Cast your burdens on him, he says. What does that look like? It looks like crying out to him in prayer and asking that he would comfort you, that he would rescue you. Go to him in prayer and find peace and find deliverance in Jesus. Where do you go in times of anxiety? Where is it that you go when you worry, when you fear, when you're anxious, when you're overwhelmed, when you're stressed? Sadly, Oftentimes we go to sin to an escape. And we try to escape in sin. When Jesus says, come to me and cast your burdens on me. Go to Christ and be humble that he receives your burdens. And fourthly, prayer demonstrates his great love for us. The end of verse 7, because he cares for you, it says. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we pray, we see what a true gift it is. And we see how much we are loved by God. We see that he listens to us. That he works through our prayers. And that he comforts us through his spirit. When we pray, we are ministered to and loved by God. Prayer should humble us. As we realize we have no right to go to God in prayer. And yet, he loved us. He loves us. And he cares for us. And he gives us that right through Jesus Christ that we can go to him in prayer. That is humbling. Therefore, to not pray, to not pray is to be prideful. It is this illusion of independence when we seek to not pray. It is prideful and we, we believe we are independent. Prayer, but prayer humbles us. In all of these different ways, and praying is a, is a humble act in and of itself, in which we recognize our dependence on God. When we don't pray, is an act of pride. For you to not pray is for you to say in some way that, that you don't need God, that, that you're fine on your own. And it's a prideful thing to not pray. Why else should we pray? Next, because prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Humbling us is not the only benefit prayer offers. But prayer actually changes things. God works through prayers. Prayer accomplishes much. Do you believe this? That prayer actually 
accomplishes much. That God works through prayers. It's a tough thing to wrestle with. I know it is tough to wrestle with many times. The question is commonly asked, does, does, does prayer change God's mind? That is a common question. Does prayer change God's mind? The answer is no. Prayer does not change God's mind. Does prayer change things? Yes. Prayer changes things. But see, these are two very different things. You can't change God's mind. But prayer certainly does change things. Okay, R.C. Sproul, he wrote this. He said, quote, When God hangs his sword of judgment over people's heads and they repent, and he then withholds his judgment, has he really changed his mind? The mind of God does not change, for God does not change. Things change. And they change according to his sovereign will, which he exercises through secondary means and secondary activities. The prayer of his people is one of the means he uses to bring things to pass in this world. End quote. This is how God uses prayer to change things. Yes, God is sovereign. And yes, he has a perfect plan already set up. But his plan is that you pray. The means to the end is often that you pray. Right? Yes, God is sovereign. He has this perfect will, this perfect plan. And we are part of that. And part of his will is that this would happen. And part of that is the means to that end. Part of his will is that we would pray for this to happen. And so he acts for it to happen. See, God is so far above us that somehow he uses our our prayers to fulfill his purposes. He ordains the means to the end. We don't change his mind, but in his mind and in his plan, he ordained that we would pray. So pray. Just like if you were in Christ, when you prayed the prayer of of repentance and you were saved, if you're a Christian, you prayed a prayer of repentance and you were saved. Something changed. Did God's mind change? No. He ordained that. But something did change. And God used your prayer to change your position with Him. Because you were enemies with Him. You were hostile to Him. You were separated from Him. By His grace, He gave you eyes to see, He gave you a new heart. Something changed. You cried out to him in faith and repentance. Something changed. You weren't before. You were crying out to him in curses. And now you're calling out to him in praise and faith. Something changed. He didn't change. But he changed you. See, the actual effectiveness of prayer. Does prayer change things? Is it effective? It's very difficult to prove, right? It comes down to your faith in God's word. Maybe we pray and the thing comes true. Hey, look, it came true. Did it come true because we prayed? What if we didn't pray? Would it have happened? I don't know. What would have happened if we didn't? Maybe it happened because we prayed. Or not. We didn't pray. And we get caught up in these silly games. Time and time again, we see in Scripture how God works through prayers. We looked at a few of those last week. And we are promised that he works through our prayers. James 5.16 says that. Write, write that down. James 5.16. Do you trust the word of God? Do you trust the word of God that says he works through our prayers? Don't try to guess if, if your prayers actually do something or not. Maybe they did. Maybe they... Know that they do. How do you know that your prayers actually do something? Because God's word says that it does. Don't try to figure out your theology based on guessing the interpretation of your experiences. Base your theology on God's word. Prayer changes things. Lastly in this section, in the why, and most importantly, is that prayer glorifies God. That prayer glorifies God. The primary purpose of prayer is not just to give us what we want. Yes, God does use prayer to fulfill our needs and our wants. And yes, there are a number of ways in which prayer is to our benefit. Yes, but that is not the primary purpose. Prayer is for God's glory and for our benefit in that order. It's all about God. 
It's about giving him the glory. That's what it's all about. It is to display his goodness, to display his power, to display his wisdom, to display his grace. And as we pray and as we see God answer prayers in his perfect ways, we have no option but to see how good and how powerful and how wise and how how gracious he is. This is why I think we should be paying attention to how God is answering prayers. Sometimes I recommend using a prayer journal. You write down prayers. And sometimes you go back, you look, and you're like, wow, I forgot I prayed for that. Look at how I answered that. I can't believe he said yes to that. Look at this. I, look, he said no, and I'm so glad that he did. Right? And you go back and you see. Whether he answers as a yes or no, we ought to see his awesomeness. We ought to see his perfection, and we are to give him praise. Don't mindlessly just say a prayer to God and then let it go stale and just forget about it and you move on. No, but see God's wondrous work in prayer and give him praise. We should want nothing more than to glorify God. right? This is our purpose in life and everything we do ought to be for the glory of God. Everything. And so this ought to be our purpose in prayer as well. We have to do it for his glory. The mature prayer is asking God to be glorified first. Even if that means to answer your prayers and no. That, is our, that should be our prayer. The primary purpose of our prayer is for Him to be glorified. you just getting what you want, right? A, a yes, that's just a bonus. But let your prayers... Be through God's will. Let your prayers be that God is glorified. That that is what you want more than anything. More than your prayer being answered, yes. First and foremost, God lets you be glorified through this. And if that means that I look like a fool, if that means that it is a no, if that means that I continue in the suffering, if that means that it cost me my life, so be it so that you may be glorified. That is our prayer. Our greatest prayer in life should be that God is glorified. Is that your prayer tonight? Is that your prayer? When we look at the where, the why, and now we look at the how. And I look at the how, we look at the Lord's Prayer. We'll look at Matthew 6, 9-13. Please turn there if you would. We're going to spend the rest of our time there. Looking at the Lord's Prayer. We look at well, how to pray. Well, let's look at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. The Lord's Prayer is very well known. And Jesus is not saying that, that this is the only way to pray. Right? He's not saying this is your magical formula. Rather, he's saying you ought to pray in this way. And he provides an outline of how our prayer should look. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Not saying that we should say these words verbatim, but we should pray in this way. Okay, so I'm summarizing it this way. Verse 9 shows us that we are to pray by respectfully approaching your Father. Let me read verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray by respectfully approaching your Father. He starts off by saying, our Father. Some might need to stop right there. Jesus says to address your prayers to God, the Father. Do you have a hard time praying because you can't get past the first couple of words? We talked about this last week in the who section. We'll talk about it again right now. Is is God your Father? Is God your Father? Have you been saved and adopted into his family? And maybe not. Maybe that's why you can't even... Say, our Father. But if He is your Father, then you are His child. And this is who you are praying to. A loving, caring, gracious Father. Know that you can approach God anytime because He is your Father. He says, hallowed be your name. What does that even mean? Like Halloween? What is going on? (laughs) It means to come in respect. 
It means to honor as holy. Yes, we can come to God as Father, but we also remember who He is. He is God. He is holy. As we begin our prayer, we are exclaiming and we are acknowledging the greatness of who He is. Hallowed be Your name. Prayer is worship, like we've already said. And in prayer, in worship, we declare who God is. We looked at that a little bit last week. Right, that even as, as as we sing, right, as we sing, that is a form of worship that we are, we are declaring who He is, right? We're declaring what He's done as as we read God's Word, as we speak to one another. This ought to be on our lips that we are declaring who He is and what He's done, and we are worshiping for that even in our prayer. As prayers worship, we are to acknowledge who He is and what He has done. Not only does this glorify him as you declare his majesty, but it reminds you of who he is. So we pray by respectfully approaching your father. Next, we pray by submitting everything to God as king. Verse 10. We pray by submitting everything to God as king. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. What are we asking for here? To pray for his kingdom to, to come is to trust in his reign and his rule. It is to live in light of his kingdom. It is saying, God, I trust your rule over my life. I trust your rule over the universe, over all that happens. That means whatever happens in your life, you are trusting him. You are trusting his reign. You are trusting his rule. It means whatever happens here on earth, whatever wars happen, whatever natural disasters happen, whatever sickness happens, whatever death happens, whatever hardship happens, whatever blessing happens, whatever happens, you trust his rule. It is being prayerful that your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. That if you were to come back now, Jesus, come back. If not, then I trust that you will still reign and rule. And whatever happens right now, I'm okay. And I trust you. Your will be done. Your will be done. Can you pray that God's will be done? Can you pray that his will be done? Is that an honest prayer for you? That no matter what, you desire his will above everything else. When we pray this, In light of God's kingdom, God's kingdom, we are submitting to God as our king. You see? Your kingdom come. You are the king. I submit to you as king. We are saying, God, you're my king. I am your servant. I will do whatever you want me to do. Can you pray with that kind of openness and absoluteness? God, my king, whatever your will. I am your servant. Here I am. Send me. I will do as you will. Can you pray that? What if God's will was for you to preach the gospel to your friends, and as a result, you lose your friends? Or for you to to grow up one day and become a missionary overseas and leave everyone you know? Or for you to not have a family? And be single your whole life. Do you pray for God's will to be done? Or do you only pray for your desires to come true? God is our king. Are you a loyal subject? Are you a loyal subject that says, yes, God, whatever you desire, I will do. That is now my desire. Or are you running a rebellion? against our king and says, no, this is what you desire, but I have a different desire and I want to go the other way. We're going to look at that this weekend. A little teaser. Next, we pray by laying your needs before God. Pray by laying your needs before God. Verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, there could be a lot of interpretations of what that means, of give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? We're not going to get into all of that. I told you we're flying a little high tonight. 
But I believe he's referring to, to our basic needs. That we are to go before God and place our needs at his feet. Make your request known to God. Now I want to challenge you in two ways in which we can do this. One is this. To put your trust in the provider, not the provision. Put your trust in the provider, not the provision. Sometimes we get so caught up in asking something from God. We want this so badly. It can become an idol. That it's it itself that we're praying for. It can become our hope. We place our trust in the provision. We believe that if only we had blank, everything would be better. And we lose sight of what we're praying for. Is the purpose of our prayer to simply get what we want? Or is the purpose of our prayer to glorify God? Don't place your trust in the provision itself. Place your trust in the provider. Place your trust in the one who gives all that you need. In the one who actually is worthy of all of our trust. What if the provider does not give what you're asking for? Does your hope and your trust fall apart? Then your hope and trust was in something you shouldn't have been in. Secondly, I would say this, that in a materialistic society, ask for your daily provisions. He says our daily bread. Our daily bread. The bare necessities. That's what our request should be. That's what our desire should be. God, allow me to live. We live in a materialistic society that's all about having more and having more and having more. Having more things. Having more comforts. Having more things that just make us happier. That is not what our prayer should consist of. We should pray, God, Give me what I need to to continue your ministry. God, give me bread so I can live and continue to preach your gospel. Do your prayers reflect a desire to be like the rest of the world? God, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. Your prayers materialistic? Pray for your daily bread, he says. Your daily bread. Not that God couldn't provide you with the abundance of the world. But that should not be your focus and your main desire. Maybe he chooses to bless you in that way. Maybe. Who cares? Ask for your daily provision so that you can continue his work. Not materialistic things so that you can become distracted. If you're a Christ, you're an ambassador for him. What do we need to do? Getting distracted. We have a mission. We have a job. Let's spread his gospel. Let's preach his word. We're going to get to that this weekend. Another teaser. All right, next. We pray by repenting of your sins. Pray by repenting of your sins. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now the question is. If we've already been forgiven, then why ask for forgiveness again and again? We've already been forgiven. Why am I still asking for it? Does the Christian need to have continual repentance in order to be saved? That they have to keep saying, oh, oh God, forgive me this, forgive me this. And then, oh, no, I missed a sin and then I died and I didn't repent. And so now I'm not a Christian anymore. No. it's not what he's saying. Now, if you are not a Christian, I'll say this, that this is what you need, that you need repentance. You need forgiveness of your sins. And there's nothing you need more. If you're not a Christian, this is what you need more than anything. You need the forgiveness of your sins. You need repentance done in faith. And I believe there are still some in this room that need this. That needs to, in faith, trust in Jesus Christ and his work and his perfect life and his death in his resurrection, believe in Jesus and to repent of your sins, to turn away, to admit it to God and ask him that he would forgive you and to submit to him as king, as Lord, and turn away from your sins and turn towards him in worship and praise. I do believe there are still some in here that need that faith and repentance of Jesus Christ. And that's given to us by the grace of God. But daily repentance of sin, while not salvific, it is necessary for the Christian 
Okay, again, not in regards to salvation, but in regards to, to living for the Lord. For the Christian even, yes, yes, that the reign and the rule of sin in our lives, it's removed. Yes, but sin still remains in our lives, right? Yes, we are still fighting sin. Christian, right? We are still fighting sin. You should be. And with that fight comes repentance. To fight it, to fight that sin means to acknowledge it. It means to bring it to the Lord and confess it. It means to turn away from it. Right? For a Christian to say, well, I've already been forgiven. And then just not care about the sin in their life at all. I would ask if there was truly genuine repentance to begin with. See, repentance is hating that sin. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit dwelling inside you. And so now you hate that. Your desires have changed. And you desire to worship God. And you have this sin. You say, oh, what is this? And I want nothing to do with this. And so you bring it to the Lord and say, God, I don't want to sin against you. And, and you confess it to him. You repent of it. You turn away from it. And forgiveness is always there. Every time. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, you know, I'm not really struggling with a lot of sin. I'm doing pretty good. Is that you? Maybe we go into discussion group and say, well, what are we? What are you guys struggling with right now? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not really struggling. Oh, he's struggling? Oh, okay. I'm doing pretty good. Is it hard for you to see the sins in your life? Maybe you need to repent of self-righteousness. Maybe that's one thing you need to repent of. I want you to listen to a list of sins that came out of the Westminster Confessions. Is that what we were talking about, Jason? The Westminster Confessions last week? That's what it was. We're trying to think of it, huh? That's it. That was it. The Westminster Confessions. Listen to this. Look at how serious they took every sin. I mean, this is a list of sins that, that they repented of. I was, I was convicted of this. Listen to this. this. These are some of their confessions of repentance. In ignorance of God and a lack of nearness to him. Exceeding great selfishness in all that we do. The fact that we are glad to find excuses for the neglect of our duties. The fact that we neglect the reading of scripture in the secret place. The fact of our refined hypocrisy, whereby we desire to appear what indeed we are not. The fact that we are readier to search out and censure faults in others than to see or to deal with faults in ourselves. Our foolish jesting away of time with useless conversation. The existence of bitterness rather than zeal. Too much eyeing of our own credit and applause, being pleased with it when we get it, and unsatisfied when we don't. Do you confess to the Lord like this? I mean, look at that. That wasn't just like, oh yeah, God, sorry I sinned today. Well, what sin? What are you talking about? Be specific. Not just, oh yeah, God, you know, I'm, I, I've been struggling. You've been struggling. How have you sinned against God today? Because you have, and I have. Do you confess to the Lord? Are you repenting of these things in your life? Or do you just live in sin and say, I'm not really struggling. I'm not really sinning. I know it's there, but... But what? When we live a life of sin and we, and we are non-repentant, as in we're not turning from it, sometimes we feel distant from God. Do we not? But why is it that we feel distant from God? Has he separated himself from us? Not at all. No, he's not, right? It is us. It's not God. It is us who is holding on to our sin. And we're walking daily in the flesh and not in the spirit. And this causes friction. It, 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 it causes that feeling. Not, not separation in our position with him. Not in our standing from him. Not from the love of God. God's love for his people does not change. But it does change in, in, in how we walk and in, in how we feel. This is why we seek forgiveness. You know, it'd be like this. Imagine... Imagine the son, this, this teenage son. He, he, he sneaks out at night, let's say. It's, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. He sneaks out at night. He's not supposed to. And he gets caught. And he knows he gets caught. But he comes home and he just goes to bed. No one said a word about it. The next morning at breakfast, they're all sitting there. The air is thick, right? I mean, you can feel it. You can, I mean, you can slice it with a knife. And they go, man, they, can, they haven't talked about it. Now, he's still, let's say the, the, the dad and the son are there, right, at the table. He's still his son. 
Their position did not change. He is his father. He is his son. But they can't go on like that. There needs to be an apology. There needs to be forgiveness, right? The same is true for you. You're, you sin, and you continue to sin, and you act as if like nothing's even happened. And then you enter into a place of worship with no repentance. And you just eat your Cheerios as if nothing happened. And your position with God has not changed. You are a child of God. You are loved infinitely, perfectly by Him. But that doesn't mean that you don't say anything. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be repentance. We have to bring our sin to the Lord. And God, as it says in 1 John, is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Bring your sins to the Lord and know that you will receive forgiveness and grace. Lastly, we pray by keeping a watchful eye on the enemy. Pray by keeping a watchful eye on the enemy. Verse 13 says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, lead us not into temptation can often be misunderstood. In fact, some people, I believe there was a time, I don't know, they still have, some Catholics have removed this from Scripture. To lead us not into temptation. We must seek to understand it correctly. God tempts no one, James 1.13 says. So why pray this? What's going on? We are asking that God would give us the strength to not sin. We're asking that God would give us the strength and power to overcome sin when we are faced with temptation. Let me be clear. Temptation is not sinful. Falling to it is. You will be tempted. That's okay. But the question is, how are you going to respond to the temptation? You see? We pray that God would deliver us from this evil, that we would not fall to our temptation. Now, don't pray this and then put yourself into a situation in which you will be tempted. Don't, don't dance around and flirt with temptation. Don't pray that God would keep you from temptation and then you put yourself in position in which you know you will be tempted. Don't pray, oh, God, you know, uh, lead us not to temptation. Ooh, but I'll lead myself into temptation. I'll hang out with these friends in which I know when I hang out with them, I am tempted to sin. But God, don't lead me into temptation. Or I'm going to get into this relationship with this boy or this girl, and I know it's going to be wrong, and I know it's going to lead me into temptation, but God, don't lead me into temptation. But I'm going to lead me into this relationship into temptation. Or you know that you, going on the computer or going on these websites, will lead you into temptation, and you say, oh, God, don't lead me into temptation, but I'm just going to mess around here on the internet where I shouldn't be. What are we doing? Flee from it. Be like Joseph. that said, no, get out of here. I'm, I'm running from this. I get away from this. We pray this prayer. Why? Because we need help. Don't you? I know I do. I mean, we need, I mean, why is it? Why is it that we can do so much? I mean, do you know we sent a man to the moon? I don't even know how we did that. These phones, I don't understand an iPhone. It's literally a piece of glass. And I can talk to someone like a mile away. Two miles even. And I can hear their voice. And now I can press the button. I can see their face. I don't know how this works. Like, how are we doing these things? I don't know. It's crazy. But we can't rid ourselves of sin. We can't do that. Why is it that, that we still argue with our parents? Why is it that we still get angry? Why is it that we still this and we still that? Why is it we say we don't want to sin, but then we turn around and do it anyways? I don't know that I really ever committed a sin that I didn't want to do. I freely chose to do it. It's because of sin. And we still have it. And you were born with it. And you were a sinner long before you ever sinned. You're not a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you are a sinner. We were born in Adam. Therefore, we're born sinners. Those who have been born again in the new Adam, in Christ, we have the power and the ability through him to say no to sin. If you are in Christ, you are free from the guilt and the rule of sin. But as long as you are in this earthly body, you will struggle with sin. Because the flesh and the spirit are at war. 
So don't just say, oh man, that, that's too bad. Pray. Pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let that be our prayer. You hate sin? Man, I hate sin. I really hate sin. So I'm not just going to say, man, I hate you, sin. And then that's it? God, I need you. Please. Deliver me from evil. Is that your prayer? Now, as we close our short series on a life of prayer, I hope that you were challenged and encouraged in ways in which that you can commune with God. Prayer is an essential part of the Christian walk. The questions we've asked all series is, do you pray? Do you pray? Are you a man? Are you a woman of prayer? Is this a characteristic of your life? Remember what J.C. Ryle said. He said, it is one thing to say your prayers and another to pray. If you are a Christian, go to your Father in prayer and commune with Him. Bring your requests and your thanksgiving to Him. Pray constantly everywhere you are, all for the glory of God. What does your prayer life look like, Christian? Is it biblical? Is it healthy? Are you engaged in prayer with your Father? Prayer is not just words that, that we say so that we can get uh, a check in the box that says things that good Christians do. Hey, check, I did it. If you view it as that, either I, I have failed you miserably the last two weeks or you've just not been listening to the truth of Scripture. Prayer is sweet communion with the Father in which you can cast any burden on Him, in which you give Him thanks, and ultimately in which you glorify and worship Him. So pray. And if you are not a Christian, you have no communion with the Father. You are alienated from Him. There is a wall of hostility between you and God. And you need to be brought near. And the only way to be brought near is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made the way for you to have a loving relationship with God. It is because of what Christ accomplished in his perfect life and in his death and his resurrection that you can be reconciled to God. So non-Christian, pray. Pray to God. Pray that he would save you. Pray that by his grace he would give you faith to believe and to get a heart of repentance. Pray to God. Well, as we did last week, let's just finish with some silent prayer. Take one or two minutes just to pray to God. Are there sins that need to be confessed? Are there thanksgivings that need to be given? Are there, are there people that you need to intercede for and pray for? Go to God in prayer. Receive grace and mercy and commune with the Father. Spend a minute or two in silent prayer and I'll close this in prayer.